at the end of the day, when you have that kind of healthy margin, whether that's venture capital or private equity, the business should run on a similar scale of the pursuit of profitability, cost control, quality standard. And that, to us, is not so different, of a, not so much of a distinction between the two asset classes of investments. This is a re-recording of my intro to the episode originally titled The Millennial Money Behind Kindbody. That's the title that I came up with. I was originally contacted by Recharge Capital's PR firm. The introduction was that they were an investor in Kindbody, and that's discussed in this interview. After Inside Reproductive Health released the interview, I was contacted by Kindbody's executive leadership, indicating they had no record of Lauren Gu or Recharge Capital on their cap table, no record of them owning equity in Kindbody. An employee from Recharge Capital later reported a clerical error from the past that confirmed Kindbody's finding. I don't know much more than that. Consider this update as you listen to a conversation that was recorded prior to this revelation. We cover a lot of ground in this episode, and we cover private equity and venture capital being used together. We talk about how they consolidate clinics with private equity and then align the incentives with scalable technologies that are funded by venture capital. We talk about globalization. What is this money from Singapore doing in the US, Europe, other parts of Southeast Asia and all over? And it's because of who the entrepreneur is. His name's Lauren Gu. He's the founding partner of Recharge Capital. And he's not even 30 years old yet. So we talk about, you're not even 30 years old. How do you know you won't be the next Sam Bankman-Fried? We talk about the capital stack and the value chain across the fertility field. We talk about which countries are beginning to attract far more international patients than currently are. Who's going to be the winners in Lauren Gu's perspective? Is this the end of globalization? What supply chain issues are happening right now across fertility supplies? And finally, we talk about business ethics and pervoision, pervoision in corporate medicine, because you know I can't resist. And you're going to hear more of certain words from venture capital than you have from private equity. And I personally am paying attention to it because I want my capitalists to be, I like the Kevin O'Leary's of the world. I know what they're about. I know the transparency in in their self-interest. And I get really concerned when for-profit entities begin to promote social good. Uh, And I don't know that uh, there's anything of of that happening uh, with Lauren Gu and, and who he's involved with. I just ask his perspective about it because he is from venture capital and uh, and something I'm paying attention to. Uh, I think he educates us a lot in this episode, as always. You know, I don't know uh, what companies and VC funds and PE funds are going to create tons of value in this space and be godsends for the field, and which ones are going to be leeches. I just, I don't know that. But I did have fun talking with Lauren Gu in this interview, and I hope you get a really good education from him, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Mr. Gu, Lauren, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Rifin, for having me. Your team contacted me at an interesting time because I've done... 160, 170 episodes at this point have talked to a lot of CEOs of either 
venture-backed companies or private equity-backed companies, but very few of the capitalists themselves, very few of either the venture capitalists or the capitalists behind private equity. And someone suggested to me recently that uh, I interview a couple of these folks. And so your team serendipitously contacted me and I looked you up and thought this uh, is pretty interesting for a young guy. So I'd love for you to first give us, uh, you're the principal of Recharge Capital and the founding partner there. And uh, I'd love for you to just give us a little bit of a background on how your company came to be, how you've built your portfolio thus far. And, and then we can start talking about what's drawing your eye to reproductive medicine. Sure. Um, very happy to talk a little bit about recharge capital. Um, so here we're a little bit differently structured compared to the typical venture capital or private equity funds. Uh, we are very thematically based, uh, which means that uh, we pick out three to four macro themes that we believe to be, you know, having the longest macro tailwinds behind it. Um, and we play a very deep value chain driven model for each of those themes uh, and have a global approach in terms of portfolio construction as well as integration analysis. So within healthcare, which is obviously a very big sector, uh, we've looked at a bunch of different sector verticals within healthcare and have determined that fertility and reproductive health is going to be the biggest growth and most profitable sector in the years to come. So there we are. We are spending a ton of time in the fertility sector. So how did you yourself get into venture capital? If, I, if, if I'm reading correctly, I believe that there was uh, one magazine uh, dated a couple years ago that said you were 26. So I'm putting you at 28 or 29. That was an article from Channel News Asia uh, two and a half years ago. So I'm putting you at 28 or 29 today. So am I correct in understanding you're under 30? <laughs> yes. How do you get to be the founder of a venture capital firm at such a young age? Um, so I started my career after college in a hedge fund uh, focused on distressed assets. Um, so that was a really good training for both credit and equity, uh, both public and private. Uh, while I was doing that, I think I really had a very interesting uh, discovery about like investment, uh, which was there's so many people who are very confined by the so-called asset classes, right? Um, people think about a public market, private market, uh, credit and equity being very different. But actually to really understand a company or to really understand even a sector, you have to be able to look across the entire capital structure and be able to play along the entire value chain. So with that in mind, I wanted to set up a practice that is different from most of the other firms out there. And I couldn't find another firm to join to have this kind of investment approach. So I just decided to start one myself. You couldn't find a firm that was interested in having a strategy across the value chain? Across the value chain, across the capital stack. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about what that means, because some of my audience will understand that without further explanation. And then others, myself included, don't. T talk to us about what that means, the, the value chain and, and across the capital stack. Sure. So if you, let's say, just take fertility as an example, right? Um, how do we see the advancement of this sector going forward? I think, you know, there is the components of new technologies being developed. 
there's a component of consolidation of independent practices. There's a component of providing both equity and debt for some of those um, roll-off strategies. Um, so essentially what you're playing is you're doing some portion of venture capital. You're doing some portion of private equity. You're doing some portion of um, credit. Uh, and by combining all those different things together, uh, you have a portfolio along the entire value chain and you can actually integrate them and create synergies uh, for this particular value chain with all the different players uh, that's basically playing a different role um, in the ecosystem. So if you are just a typical venture capital firm, uh, you're probably only investing in the more frontier technology or very new business models for clinics. And that has scalability issue. It will take time for you to scale. Uh, you might not have access to the best doctors, might not have access to the biggest networks. Um, so for us, if you think about sort of how new technology can be adopted, we think, you know, why don't we invest, you know, venture dollars into new technologies, invest private equity type of dollars into clinic roll-ups, and then just have those clinics adopt those technologies, uh, given that there's a synergy of being in the same portfolio. So the interests are a lot more aligned for us uh, and also for the different management teams. So are you talking about deploying both venture capital and private equity? Yes. So I think this is kind of a follow-up from a conversation recently that I had with venture capitalist Abigail, Abigail Cyrus and her colleague, Dr. David Sable, uh, who manage a fund. And uh, they were talking about different solutions for scaling access to reproductive medicine. And I posed the question about, well, I see a lot of new solutions coming into the field. They're an AI solution for something that med techs do that they they can do 10x what a current med tech can do or 100x or or whatever and i see this happening in the lab and in the clinic um it, augmenting what embryologists can do what reis can do what nurses can do etc cetera, etc cetera. uh i see a terrible bottleneck in those technologies being adopted because even though these technologies do like i can see the value in them i can see what they do but they're, it's just like the clinic can't adopt them. And so I asked David and Abigail, like, why is this the case? How do you replace that? And they're like, well, you may need to build the system around that and then build the providers to align with that. And so is that what you're, is that what you're talking about when you're talking about uh, being across the value chain and and using venture capital on the scalability side and private equity on the consolidation side? Am I understanding that correctly or would you phrase it differently? Yes, I think you're understanding it correctly, but let me just sort of give a little bit more clarification on that, right? So you mentioned this new technology adoption issue, which is very prevalent, not just in the US, but also like everywhere in the world, right? Um, I think a lot of times people tend to not appreciate the certain intrinsic conflict of interest between the new technologies and the clinic owners or practitioners, right? So uh, when you have this capability of increasing, say, the single cycle IVF success rate, uh, the clinics are paying for this. Uh, what is really interesting is the clinic has a difficult time of charging those kind of software solutions to the patients because the patients don't feel that this is a real test or real diagnosis that they're getting. 
and you are technically reducing the number of cycles that each patient will be doing, which cuts into the top line of some of those clinics. So there's the moral hazard where the clinic owner feels like, sure, this is a great technology. It's benefiting the patients, but is it hurting my own clinic financially, both top line and bottom line? Sometimes that is the case. Uh, and therefore, you start to see a lot of pushbacks where you know the clinics are more than happy to pilot some of those programs. But when it actually becomes like widely used, adopted, or getting paid, um, it is not the case. So for us, the way that we really think about it is how do you make sure the clinic or the chains are incentive aligned? And that requires, number one, capital for consolidation. And number two, to your points and to your previous guest points, build that incentive aligned with the new technology providers. So you can have a different pricing model for the patients. You can have a different service model for the patients and basically reinvent what the typical IVF packages are to the patients. I want to talk a little bit more about the bottleneck. I don't want to lionize doctors here because there probably are some doctors that would push people into IVF and want to do more IVF cycles. I know that some docs that might want to throw some rivals under the bus might think that about a couple of their contemporaries. But I think the vast majority of them, they, they are patient-centric people. And I, I do see them being kind of led astray here and there, but but they these are people with ethics. They are they want to do right by their patients. But also you can have that and then you can have external forces that put pressure, external pressures on them that cause them to betray their ethics. I just also don't see the external factors causing them to betray their ethics in this case, meaning like they they can do 1500 IVF cycles, 2000 IVF cycles. If they have that many docs or, you know, a, a doc generally doesn't have a problem doing 200 IVF cycles. If they, if they just have halfway decent marketing relationships in their community and with referring providers, they could, do, they could probably do more. They have long wait lists in many cases. And so I, I see it being more of just like they just don't know how to implement these solutions a lot of the time or it's it's so much more work for them to implement it and until they fully integrate it it's still an additional cost yes that is absolutely the case actually if you think about a lot of the you know process for the clinics uh it's already a mature established process people run it like a well-oiled machine so when you introduce those new technologies um, whether that's for the doctors, for the embryologist, um, they are pushing back because, to your point, there's a ramp-up period. Uh, they don't know if this actually flows well seamlessly with the rest of the operations. And that cost is harder to measure. They don't know if they'll actually be able to serve more patients or actually serve less patients. Um, and that's why I think the best way of thinking about those technology adoption is you need to have clinics or chain of clinics who have a baseline of revenue that is able to support the group's financials and gradually um, introduce them from like one clinics to like five clinics, like 30 clinics, where you start to have a protocol and embryologists and doctors can really learn from our protocols of seeing this actually works. This is actually a switch that has proven to be efficient. Uh, and a lot of times that certainty really provides comfort for the doctors and the practitioners. Uh, and I think that is why 
having an external force from a capital provider perspective really soothes the concerns for a lot of those doctors and doctor owners of the clinics. Talk to us a bit about how a venture capital structure and private equity structure can work in concert. On you, You've talked about how it works in terms of being able to align the incentives. To, talk to us about how the actual structure can work, because this is unfamiliar territory to me. When I think of venture capital, I, I think of something like Dr. Sable's Life Sciences Fund, like that's pure VC, as far as I understand. I think of like Lee Equity, who I think is the current uh, private equity owner behind Inception. I think they're I think they're trying to sell their stake, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know if they have already, but I think of that as pure private equity. And so, talk to us about how do you have both in the in this same structure? Mm-hmm. Sure. So, I mean, even if you think about you know building out a new consumer friendly technology standardized chain of modern clinics. Uh, there are different ways of building it, right? You can take the approach of kind body, which is basically building new locations um, from the ground up. You can also have the model where you're rolling up existing clinics with existing patients. You are adding on a light layer of tech enablement uh, in terms of streamlining the customer experience, uh, storage of data, uh, follow-up patients interactions, and a new consumer brand equity. So in that case, you are creating a new company and technically it is venture capital, but the way that a new company is being built is through the typical private equity roll-up structure. So if you look at international scale, U.S. probably has both of those things that you've seen played out. Um, in that end, um, it is more like a you know venture capital model with new builds because a lot of the existing clinics simply don't have the standard that the current patients would demand. Uh, Europe is more of a private equity roll-up model because a lot of the clinics are already state-of-art. So is Southeast Asia. Uh, And then you look at Saudi Arabia, uh, which is just starting to push for the private clinic practices. Uh, That is going to be more like a kind body model of building from the ground up. So each geography has its own unique market flavors to it. And if you're really thinking about in the long term, you have you know, all different geographies having this kind of consumer-friendly, technology-standardized chain operation with scalability and cost efficiency, the path to get to that can be different depending on the geographies, depending on the market dynamics, depending on this condition of the existing clinics. Are the limited partners different behind each type of funding? So for us, it's the same pool of LPs. Um, and obviously, for a typical fund, uh, the LPs for venture capital and private equity will be different. And that's why, as mentioned, uh, we're structured a little bit differently, where we're purely value chain or sector focused, and we have the flexibility of moving across a capital stack. And you're based in Singapore, am I correct in that? We are based between New York and Singapore. When I had the the folks from Oma Fertility on, we talked about their raise in Silicon Valley. And I said, well, why Silicon Valley? And they, they had lived in the Bay Area for years, so that was part of it. But uh, they're originally from New Delhi. And I thought, well, New Delhi has to have a, a burgeoning VC scene. Singapore surely does. There is in New York and London. Why, why still Silicon Valley? And they said because of the institutional structure of Silicon Valley, the the way deals are done, there's such a 
uh, a proven template to follow and that uh, they felt it it's still the you know it's still the place for for venture capital so what does a place like either Singapore or other emerging uh, venture capital hubs have to offer do you suppose so it's very interesting if you look at uh, the opportunity sets um, a lot of the US investors will tell you that um, a very major growth area for fertility is actually the international market. But if you look at sort of the venture capital or even private equity funding, uh, most of the emerging market hubs for funding do not touch fertility. It is still a very foreign subject to them. Uh, and this is where we like to come in and play because we have the U.S. experience, we have the underwriting standard in the U.S., and we have the capability of accessing those emerging markets. So part of the arbitrage that we play is really being able to, you know, have this kind of understanding from the U.S. markets and U.S. investments we made and then apply it to the emerging markets where there's literally almost no competition from a capital providing perspective. This is probably a 101 question, but I'm going to ask you because I have you in front of me. Do limited partners typically come from the areas where the fund is based? Not necessarily. In our case, um, our LP base is pretty global and diverse from the U.S., from Europe, from Asia, a little bit everywhere. Let's talk a bit about uh, a hot issue, I think, in just in terms of being a young entrepreneur. So being a young entrepreneur, there is, and, and I mean, you're under 30 and you're, you're, you're the founder of this capital firm and You've got big plans for for businesses that you're investing in and, and are currently investing in. And uh, the tale of the young entrepreneur has all of the ups and downs, right? As a prototype, like on one end of the spectrum, you have uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And I think a lot of people don't like Mark Zuckerberg, but even if you don't, it, it, it would be remiss to not acknowledge him for the highly competent entrepreneur that he is. I mean, he took fate. Not only did he create the social media platform in a way that nobody was able to do before that, he also did it again by making it mobile. He's made some really smart acquisitions. And so I put him on one end of, of the spectrum of the young entrepreneur. And on the other end, I put uh, somebody like Sam Bankman Freed, who's a complete fraud. And so how do you navigate uh, the necessary naivete of youth versus the seasoned experience that, that comes from learning some hard lessons when you're moving at such a fast speed? So I think the biggest thing for that is knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. Um, in my particular case, um, I know what I'm good at, which is the financial part, the financial engineering analysis, et cetera. What I'm lacking, of course, compared to most of the doctor practitioners out there, are the expertise in the fertility space, uh, the knowledge in terms of assessing what kind of new technology, even just within AI, there are so many of them, uh, are actually you know, adoptable and scalable. Um, and that's why we have a team of scientists, MDs, senior people, as well as advisors to really help our team with that decision and assessments. Um, and that, I think, is a very important 
um, call it a safety net for preventing hubris getting into the way. Um, and for us, I think we have you know very exciting visions as a young person for the fertility space. Uh, we see a lot of interesting ways where consolidation can play for better technology, better standardization, uh, better access for people if we believe that the fertility needs are really going up uh, and you have to be able to cater to all different social economic classes for equity reasons. Um, and we have creative ideas of how to you know, bridge fragmented international markets to provide better access to patients from any places. But that is what we call the investment or financial engineering aspect of it. Uh, when it comes to the actual operations, uh, we rely on the seasoned, experienced doctors and management team. Uh, so we try not to get too much into the way of how they operate their own businesses, because that is not our place to be. You've narrowed down what you don't know. You're a pretty smart guy. You have competent advisors that are subject matter experts, or at least ostensibly, I don't know them, but but ostensibly competent people that you've surrounded. There are still unknown unknowns in business. And one of the reasons why I, for my business, I started a client services firm and it was completely bootstrapped. I never took out any type of investor money. I never took any money from family and friends. I never took out a bank loan. And part of the reason why I did that is because there are so many unknown unknowns. The speed at which I was capable of navigating those unknown unknowns was better mitigated by not having floods of money behind it. When I screw up and when I fail clients, and yes, that that does happen, it's in a way where I can I can either fix it or it's one screw up amidst successes. Like even if it's like, okay, we didn't hit this goal, we really helped them hit this goal and we return the overall investment. I still feel bad about not hitting one goal. But the speed at which we're going, that which we're delivering, I'm able to correct for mistakes. If, if, I, if I don't do fully right by a client, I can make it up over time, either in the engagement or after. And it's because I don't have investor obligations. I'm not, I'm not buying things all over the place. I'm not buying inventory. I'm not acquiring companies. I'm going at a, uh, at a little speed. Now, I think that... Uh, uh, that's probably more because of where I am on the entrepreneurial scale. If if somebody like Sarah Blakely and Elon Musk is a 100 on the entrepreneurial scale, and someone like a school teacher that won't even invest in the stock market is a zero, you know, I'm probably like a somewhere in the 60s. I'm I'm, a, I'm more of a small business owner getting into entrepreneurship. So I I need that that level of of speed right now until I get smarter, and I'm starting to get smarter. But uh, to have it coming at you that fast, like how do you mitigate the, like I, I see how you've narrowed down the unknown unknowns and you have competent people, but how do you navigate? Like you're, you're going to have unknown unknowns come up all the darn time. How do, you, how do you navigate them coming at you that fast? Well, I think, again, there are like three things about it, right? Like number one is before you get into something, you think about what are the worst case scenarios? What are the downsides? What are the legal risks? What are the operational risks? And if those happens, what's the worst thing that could you know, happen to this entire investments or happen to you know, the roll up? Um, and you have to have that planned out. 
Um, so even if the unknown happens, you know, it could come in any different form. Um, you have a little bit of a plan for it. The second part is the composition of the investments, right? So if you think about the way that we like to run, say, like a roll-up strategy for a new modern clinic chain, the underlying assets are still, you know, independently uh, operated by the doctors and the management team. The reason that a lot of those people are interested in becoming part of this is because, you know, they are independent, smaller business owners. They like what they do, but they also wish to have a little bit more upside. Uh, that upside could come from the form of by joining a larger group uh, so that there's economy of scale, so the equity gets valued higher, or that upside could come from the form of, you know, they can get partial equity bought out and have the remaining equity appreciate with the rest of the uh, uh, investment practices in the roll-up. So when you have those kind of like very grounded people still involved in the actual day-to-day operations, uh, you are less concerned about, you know, the operating mistakes from an investment side because uh, the investors are not operators. Uh, we can never get into the weeds of serving saying, uh, individual clients or managing like the order book of a single clinic. What we can do on the other side is really try to control the overall trajectory of the larger ship and make sure that the different participants of the smaller entrepreneurs um, are feeling confident, comfortable, and feeling like they're getting the upside. So again, it's kind of about narrowing down to the responsibilities within the value chain uh, of this operating ecosystem. Well, let's talk a bit more about uh, the fertility field and what you see there. So your team had sent me a note that you believe that the decision to overturn Roe will lead to a global increase in medical tourism and inter- international Partnerships. Why? Why a global increase? Do you mean f- from the United States to various countries throughout the globe? Not just that. Uh, I think what's been really interesting is if you look at the effect that U.S. has on the rest of the world. Um, when the women empowerment movement started in the U.S., it sort of blew to you know Europe and then blew to Asia. It has a ramification effect across the globe. And when you have this overturn, um, what is triggering is a lot of other countries with polarizing um, call it political or religious beliefs are also thinking about what they should be doing in terms of the regulations, in terms of the policies. And it is not unthinkable to start to, for us to start to see some of those governments will enact on something that is not so different from what the U.S. is enacting on. So that is what we consider single country political risk or regulatory risk for women. So us now, even for countries that do not have very strict um, restrictions on fertility, uh, you still have certain things are allowed and certain things are not allowed for a customized IVF journey, right? For instance, in China, like single women cannot freeze their eggs and you know, they have to resort to international tourism in order to get their egg frozen so they can have that insurance policy, right? Uh, a lot of places doesn't allow you to do genetic testing. A lot of places doesn't allow you to do gender selection. A lot of places doesn't allow you to do anything, um, any diagnosis that is considered quote-unquote invasive. Um, so for people to satisfy their medical needs, you'll start to see a lot more of international tourism, 
So that is from the political side uh, and policy side. Uh, on the other side, uh, what you will also start to see is this affordability issue, right? Uh, so U.S. obviously has always been considered having the best medical standard uh, for fertility uh, in the world. But the U.S. is perhaps also the most expensive one. Uh, if you go from you know just the egg freezing to IVF process, and if you want to have like a surrogate, um, that cost could run most of the families broke, and it's really catering to probably the top 0.1% elites. But there are a lot more demand than that, right? So people need to seek for more alternative solutions. Sometimes that alternative solution is international solutions where the medical standard is high, but the labor costs and material costs are lower. Um, and it makes the entire process much more affordable for families to um, have children. Uh, so for instance, like in that, I mean, Southeast Asia, uh, a similar experience to the um, top standard U.S. clinic experience will run about 25% of the cost uh, compared to the U.S. And that just puts a lot more families into the affordable bucket uh, and therefore um, increasing the access for them. I don't have the data, but I'm. my gut tells me my anecdotal experience tells me that the U.S. is still far and away a net importer of quote unquote, well, I'm not going to use the word tourist, but I'll say visiting patient and uh, for IVF as opposed to a net exporter. There is some, there there are U.S. patients, they go see Dr. Joe Davis in the Caribbean, they, got, they go see Dr. Mario Vega in Panama, there are clinics in Mexico and elsewhere. Uh, but, but, but there's more people coming from China and Japan and Australia and New Zealand and the UK and Canada for third-party IVF, for PGT, for sex selection, et cetera. Uh, do you have any kind of data on what the import-export ratio is of, of patients that leave the United States for IVF versus people that come in from elsewhere? So people are coming in from elsewhere. That totals to about... 20,000 cycles uh, a year, uh, which is, you know, a sizable number, but small compared to the domestic demand. But remember that 20,000 cycles are basically from the wealthiest of all, of all those international markets. Uh, and when it comes to export, um, the U.S. is probably just starting off. So you start to see Mexico being a hot destination for both egg freezing as well as IVF. Uh, starting from about 2022, you start to see in some of the newer clinics, you know, between 15 to 20 percent of their cycles being from American uh, tourists. Um, and you start to start have some of them going to Portugal, Spain, some of them going to uh, Malaysia, Thailand, um, especially when there are needs for surrogacy, uh, because surrogacy is one of the most expensive uh, process in this entire IVF journey. And most of the times people find it very challenging to afford a surrogate in the US. And that's where a lot of the export is triggered. You talked about uh, a few of the different countries that are winners. I want to ask you about or about who could be winners in in terms of the number of patients they're seeing from elsewhere. Even in the U.S., it, it is far from an equal distribution of those 20,000, right? There are clinics all over the country that see virtually zero 
international patients. And then there are clinics in Southern California where 60% of their IVF cycles are from Chinese patients. And so, uh, so it's, I mean, it's probably the, the highest end of a Prado's distribution where a square root of the, of all the clinics are doing half of the, the cycles for international patients in the U S I suspect. Um, you talked about Mexico, you talked about Portugal, Spain, Thailand, uh, who among them or among others, do you, who would you bet on as being, uh, among the winners in terms of seeing, uh, far, uh, far more than their distributive share of international patients in the next half decade? So if I were to bet, I would say the Southeast Asia, uh, region will be the biggest winner. Um, the Southeast Asia region is very interesting because it's a rather fragmented market uh, in terms of regulation. So a lot of people will tend to start their journey in Singapore and then go to Malaysia for uh, genetic testing and gender selection and then go to Thailand for surrogacy. The reason that Southeast Asia is very interesting is because it is the number one choice for the exported Chinese medical tourism. So China every year exports between 300 to 500,000 cycles of IVF uh, for international medical tourism, uh, most of which actually flows into Southeast Asia. And that number is only going to grow now that Singapore in 2023 is allowing single women to freeze their eggs. So a lot more women are signing up to traveling out of China post this COVID lockdown situation uh, to get that life insurance for themselves. The very, very wealthy ones obviously will still choose the U.S., but that is still a small number compared to the overall size. So from a volume perspective, Southeast Asia will definitely be a definitive winner. Uh, and then that's seconded by LATAM, most likely Mexico. Uh, as you start to see a lot of American couples seeking more affordable solutions, uh, that's the natural destination for them. Uh, it is familiar. Uh, it is close. Uh, they have a lot of American educated doctors practicing in Mexico. Uh, that gives them a sense of comfort and level of quality assurances. Um, so Mexico will be, you know, the near second in terms of the global winning market. So am I correct in understanding that, uh, the Southeast Asia region will be, uh, can be both an exporter and an importer still in that like, if people are leaving Singapore, are they going to, are they going to Thailand, for example, or you're saying people are going to Singapore? People are going to Singapore. Um, so Singapore itself has about domestically uh, 6,000 to 7,000 cycles of IVF on an annual basis. Um, but there's a huge flow of IVF demand that's coming in from China and some of the neighboring countries. Um, so they will be the next, importer of cycles for sure um and so is malaysia and thailand do you suspect that the number of chinese and japanese patients going to the u.s will decrease or do you suppose that the number of patients leaving china and japan for either third-party ivf or for types of pgt that they can't do in their countries do you think that will grow so much that uh, the 20,000 might not decrease, but it will just simply be a much smaller share of the, the total number of patients leaving those countries. So I would say the U.S. import number from the international demand will continue to rise 
because the overall demand for IVF is increasing. Uh, it is hard to say whether, you know, from a percentage perspective, uh, it will be an increase or decrease because it really depends on the total base. But from an absolute number perspective, it will for sure be on an upward trajectory. Yeah. Uh, then you know, Mexico and, and Latin America also increasing. And that makes me think of some content that I've been following recently. Are you familiar with the futurist Peter Zihan? He's a a natural resources, um, global supply chain, uh, energy futurist. Are, are you familiar with him at all? Uh, I've heard of him. Well, analyzing him is above my pay grade, so I'm going to try to summarize uh, his thesis. But uh, he posits an end to globalization as we know it, that having the United States Navy provide a, a absolute uh free commerce between all countries of the the world uh, is coming to an end and, and really having so that one purveyor of security being the U.S. and uh, the one really disproportionate manufacturer of inexpensive goods being China. He, he views that as, as coming to an end. If people want to know more about why he says that, I, I suggest checking out him as opposed to hearing it from me. But, uh, but he posits... Uh, that we're coming to an end of globalization, that we're going to see far more regionalization. Do you, do you see that? Uh, I absolutely see that. Actually, we've been talking about this trend of deglobalization um, since about 2017. Uh, but what we define it more granularly is you're seeing both globalization and deglobalization happening at the same time. So again, if we go back to this whole value chain of any sector, like just take, you know, fertility as an example, right? You have, fundamental technology innovation, technology application, and business application, right? Fundamental technology innovation will continue to be global winners because once you invented a technology that works, there's no need for other countries to really invent their own thing unless it has so much sensitivities around patient data or demographic data. Uh, but a lot of those can be offshored in terms of data storage to comply with the government regulations. When it comes to technology applications, which in cases are produced manufactured products or business applications, in this case, are the service providers, you will start to see a lot more regionalization. Uh, each government is now very aware that technology has the potential of winners take all. And in order to protect their own economic ceiling potential, as well as the consumer spending power, uh, they want to champion local champions. Uh, they want to foster local business to become the de facto dominant player in the market. So we definitely start to see a lot more push in terms of supporting local operated chains or clinics um, rather than really allowing an international chain to come in and just brand and operate and consolidate in that sense. So the way that we think about investment from that perspective is also that we believe that regional investments make sense. We do not force regional clinic operations or service provider to go across continents because we think it's just a not, not necessary obstacle to jump through. Uh, we prefer to have them really deep growing their own domestic market and um, provide the best service quality standard they could. So to talk more about what that does to your global investment thesis because could the, if this is the case if if there is less 
trade between countries because there isn't a U.S. Navy ensuring that every part for every piece can go to every place and then be bought and sold in each place if there is more regionalization. What, it, what about the, the risks of su supply chain risks that could make some uh, business models less viable or not viable altogether? Yeah, so there's definitely that supply chain risk. And that supply chain risk is not just uh, specific to this sector, right? It's specific to almost every sector. Um, so for us, the way that we think about it is you have this risk in mind, but at the same time, just because you have a risk, you cannot not make investments and not have those companies advance in terms of their service qualities and in terms of their business growth. So the way that we really think about this is, do we have backup plans? for each of those operating businesses. If we can have backup plans, then we let the business run, grow uh, the way they would. If we don't have backup plans, then we will reevaluate the geopolitical risks of a certain market and see if we want to exit or continue to double down on a market. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, happy to delve in more. Well, I've done about Jack Zero research on supply chain conflict in the fertility field. Maybe I should. I don't. I don't know if there's PE that's in shortage, or if there's uh, you know materials for uh, lab equipment, or for a culture that is uh, low or in in serious jeopardy. Do, are are there supply chain issues happening right now that the audience? should be aware of? And if so, what are they? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of things that are quite interesting when it comes to the medical equipment perspective. Um, I think China over the last 10 years or so has really emerged as a very economic and powerful producer of a lot of the medical supplies. Um, but in terms of clearing compliances and regulatory approvals, um, especially in, US, in the US and in Europe, uh, there are a lot of pushbacks. Um, so a lot of times the clinic will have to go for the more expensive domestically produced products uh, that adds to the cost of the overall process as well. So now what's been really interesting is you start to see some Chinese companies uh, really export their manufacturing capability out to Southeast Asia, a more neutral ground of geography, and relocate some of the manufacturing plants outside um, so that the products are produced with the same kind of supply chain cost optimization, but much more acceptable to the Western countries and Western practices. Uh, and that is actually helping with the supply chain in the sector. So let's talk about uh, some of the new technologies that are emerging to optimize sperm and egg quality, uh, particularly with evaluation. Uh, sounds like you have a particularly focus on the sperm side. Can you talk to us a little bit about what's happening there? Yeah, sure. So I think what's been really interesting is that, you know, 50% of the infertility um, issues actually come from men, but like men rarely get tested or have the willingness to get tested. And a lot of time it's really up to the decision of um, the woman to really force the men to get tested. Uh, and therefore, the market has pre historically been very small or almost no incentive for scientists to go into developing analysis tools for sperm. Uh, and what has been really interesting over the last two years or so is given the overall 
heat for the fertility market, both from a capital perspective as well as from an entrepreneurship perspective. You start to have people entering those places um, for sperm analysis. So we've seen companies that are using AI technologies, of course. Uh, we've seen companies that are using non-invasive methods to really assess the um, sp- um, sperm quality through a chemophysic, uh, chemophysics um, uh, structure. Uh, we've also seen um, technologies that uh, basically allow the uh, freezing and thawing of the sperms to be done more efficiently. Uh, and more protectively. Um, So that is one area where we think there's actually very unsaturated market demand for it. uh, And we place a lot of emphasis in terms of investments in this particular uh, sector vertical. You talked about half of being in fertility being male factor. I've never seen half. I've seen a third. Uh, I've, I've essentially, mostly what I see is a third male factor, a third female and then either a third combined or unexplained. Are you taking, are you, are you seeing other research that points to half or are you taking some yeah, of that unexplained, unexplained and combined? Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I do know that there is a problem with referring providers very often, not referring the male partner to either an andrologist or a urologist to uh, to do a semen analysis that before they get to the REI, there definitely is a problem with OBGYNs doing uh, IUIs or, or doing uh, just doing uh, maybe timed intercourse or any kind of protocol that isn't IVF without ever testing the male partner. I know that happens. I don't know how often it happens. Uh, it happens often enough. Uh, as far as I understand... Semen analysis is standard operating procedure before IVF at a REI practice. Am I incorrect? No, it is a standard practice. Okay. So, but you, so then where, to, but then where's the opportunity that like, so if it, if it is happening, then, uh, is it, so this is it still big enough of an opportunity? So this opportunity refers more specifically for the sperm freezing and then later on being used for the IVF process. So after you thaw the frozen sperm, how to quickly identify the most vital ones without necessarily um, hurting or uh, impacting the sperms. So that part is where this big opportunity is. So that part is directly related to the rise of the overall IVF cycles as well. Talk to us about the egg side. Where do you see the opportunity for evaluation technologies there? So it's kind of similar. Um, When it comes to the egg quality testing, you start to have a combination of software as well as diagnosis test. Um, What's been really interesting as we uh, see in one of our portfolio companies is that for some unexplainable reason, um, they figure that if the egg is just gently poked, uh, it actually has more vitality compared to the eggs when they were evaluated and not poked. Uh, so in a way, uh, people are still trying to figure out what would be the best way of evaluating the egg quality, but there are some interesting discoveries along the way. And um, it is a more saturated market compared to a sperm analysis. 
but we do think that there are still interesting innovations that are happening. They might be marginal improvement. They might not make you know milestone improvement, um, but it's always interesting to just observe. At risk of reaching the border of clinical discussion where I have no business participating. It's, it's very interesting to me that you're saying that it could be the case that eggs that are biopsied have more vitality than those that don't? Well, it depends on how the biopsy was done. Uh, so in this particular company's case, uh, they've developed a very, very gentle needle um, for just a gentle poke uh, to test out the tension of the surface. Uh, and they've found out through their trial experience that um, it's got more vitality. So uh, it's an interesting discovery. Uh, the company is still working on, you know, getting to the conclusion. But you know, we were pleasantly surprised and um, amazed by this thing, and uh, we continue to observe. That would be interesting. I've heard of artificial intelligence applications that look to grade an egg based on imagery so that they don't have to biopsy the the egg. And so if this finding is correct, it could be the case that that maybe that isn't the most desirable outcome. Yeah. So, you know, people have always pursued for as non-invasive as possible, um, but there's still a lot of things that People don't exactly know about the process. So, you know, I think it's always interesting to be plugged into the scientist community and just hear what they're saying and see, you know, what will be the eventual best practice outcome. What companies have you invested in thus far? So we've invested mostly in uh, service providers, aka clinic roll-up chains. Um, so, you know, in China back in 2017, it was Jinxin Fertility, in the U.S., Kind Body, in um, Southeast Asia, Generation Prime, uh, and in Portugal, Spain, uh, Seed. Um, and then we've invested in some technology companies that are basically trying to push for new non-invasive methods for either sperm analysis, egg quality analysis, AI company, for imaging analysis, uh, window of ideal implantations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, most of those technology companies actually come from either Europe or Israel. Um, so the way that we're thinking about um, our entire investment ecosystem is really being able to have the service providers to be the first line of assessment. Are those technologies really needed by the patients, by the market? Can this really help? And then we go back to evaluate, do the companies have the right, do the technology companies have the right approach to address the market needs uh, rather than the other way around. This could be an interesting distinction between private equity and venture capital that I don't know that I've touched on the show before. So typically with private equity, there isn't more than one private equity firm behind a network or a company. That's typically the case until they flip. Is that correct? Normally they're buying a controlling stake and so they might own 60%, 80%, whatever. But typically, it's one private equity firm behind That's a, typical case. Yes. A, a fertility network. And that typically is not the case in venture capital, am I right? Because you, you, do, you do multiple rounds, you, you sell your, you, you, do, you, do a, you, you have an angel round, perhaps you do a seed round, then a series A, series B, et cetera. And so 
there are often multiple uh, venture capital firms behind one company. So you're one of the venture capital firms that owns equity in KindBody. Is that a correct interpretation? Yes. So there are certain clinics chains um, that we're the majority owners of, and there are certain investments that we're the minority owners of. Um, and this is where the flexible investment structure for us comes in. Um, we believe that by first deploying minority investment in certain businesses allows us to really study and learn the market and see what are the things that worked and what are the things that didn't work. And then we will have more operational confidence uh, and insight in terms of how to buy up majority ownerships of different clinic chains in other emerging markets. How do you ter- determine what's too big or too small for, uh, you, you know, it's like, okay, maybe we want to be, we value the company at this, but if we can't get X percentage of it, it's, just, it's not us worth it being a part of, or they already have too many uh, VC partners. They've already sold too much of the company that we're not going to be able to get what we need out of. How do you, how do you make that calculation? So, I mean, at the end of the day, for an investment firm, it is a return expectation, right? So for the venture type, uh, we tend to be more passive because there are multiple investors involved. Uh, but for the private equity ones, uh, where you have to spend a lot more time in terms of rolling them up, operate, uh, streamlining the operations, making sure the cost structure makes sense, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we have a very dedicated um, analysis team uh, that allows us to figure out what is the right size of each individual roll-up investments, what is the right multiple for those, uh, do we add accretively to the overall chain that we're building out uh, and investing into. Um, so that is a much more granular process of investment than you know, taking a venture capital investments into um, you know, a, typical, a more typical startup uh, company experience. So as I said before, I think, you know, the eventual outcome for um, those businesses are all consumerized, technology standardized, uh, chain uh, operating uh, businesses. But the way to build towards that can be very different. I want to let you conclude with our audience on the thoughts that you want to conclude on. First, I want to touch on this as we start to see more venture capital Coming into the field, there's a word that venture capitalists tend to use all the time and private equity really almost never uses, which is democratize. That's a word that that VCs use all the time. And I think like, okay, if you're looking at it as the through the most positive lens, that's what it would be. Democratizing care, democratizing access. Uh, if you're looking at it, on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps on the most cynical side, I think of, did you ever watch the Simpsons? Did you ever get into the Simpsons? You know, Monty Burns is for, for the two people that never watched the Simpsons. Mr. Burns is the evil billionaire that owns the nuclear power plant in town. And the, in one of the earlier seasons, he gets into recycling and it looks like, wow, he's doing such a good job. And really he's just using this, uh, recycling operation to, to create a, a really unethical whale fishery or something. And, and Lisa Simpson, our protagonist confronts him and says, you're evil. And when you're trying not to be evil, you're even more evil. 
And so I look at that as like, okay, that's the opposite end of the the spectrum is like it democratized really just a, a buzzword for uh, squash the crap out of mom and pop shops in every vertical we can and be a monopoly. I'd see it more though. I, I tend not to look at things either hyper positively or hyper cynically. I do look at it as I see a ton of companies that have a social pressure to uh, do social good that I don't actually think is a net social positive. In other words, the, the, the role of a company is to make profit, period. If it does not make profit, it is not a company. Therefore, if you are asking a company to, uh, if you're asking a company to be the leader in social change, in cultural values, then you are asking them to tie that in a way that makes money and that inevitably becomes a perversion of the values. I see that and I see that being different from what business ethics is, which is having a baseline of, of ethics that, okay, we, we, our job is to make a profit. We have to do it within these standards. Uh, that's what business ethics is. That's different from being the, uh, oh, seen as the purveyor of global positive social good. And uh, how do you see it? So <clears throat> I wouldn't use the word democratizing, but I do think that if you believe that this demand for IVF is really increasing significantly, then as I mentioned before, this should be made more accessible to different social economic classes, which means that more affordable options should happen. But being more affordable, whether that is through, you know, international medical tourism uh, options or through, you know, uh, technology enhancement does not mean that it should be free or it should be, you know, net uh, not profitable for the businesses, right? What is really uh, concerning, uh, especially over the last cycle of bull market, is a lot of venture capital firms were subsidizing a lot of businesses, basically trying to do good for the people. And those businesses tend not to be sustainable. And those businesses in the long run tend to run into a lot of ethic issues as they were just scrambling to survive. So we think a healthy margin for a business is very important. And at the end of the day, when you have that kind of healthy margin, whether that's venture capital or private equity, the business should run on a similar scale of the pursuit of profitability, cost control, quality standard and that to us is not so different of a not so much of a distinction between the two asset classes of investments we've talked about globalization and regionalization we've talked about venture capital and private equity and how they are different structures also how they can be used to align incentives we talked about financing we talked about business ethics the final thoughts are yours, Lauren Gu. How would you like to conclude? Well, thanks, Griffin. That was a very comprehensive discussion around almost all aspects of the uh, fertility investments. Uh, for me, that's why think- it's not a tw- ten-minute podcast. That's <laughs> why I can't. I can't. Do, I can't do ten-minute episodes. Um, for me, I think I would really encourage people to look more internationally 
uh, as we believe that the future of IVF or fertility practices will not be so doctor-centric, will be much more technology standardized. And we believe that having the right protocol with the right technology adoption should really allow for more access to different social economic classes of people demanding IVF, not just for the Americans, but also for the global people. Lauren Gu, founding partner of Recharge Capital. Thank you very much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you, Griffin. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.